you have your Bibles, you can go to 1 John. We're going to be there this morning. Uh, most of the verses I use are from the New Living Translation. I'll indicate if it's otherwise. Um, but we've been going through this book now for a few weeks. This, the, the theme of this book is walking in the light. How do we, as believers, walk in intimate, meaningful fellowship with our God? Because outside of that, life is pretty pointless. Um, this week, we're gonna, the message is called In the Foxhole, as we look at chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Um, I want you to look, there's two sections here we're going to look at this morning, verses 12 through 14 and verses 15 through 17, and we'll kind of see how they tie together. Um, but this, these first couple of verses are, are just weird. I'm going to give you a heads up. It's a strange text. It's enigmatic. I mean, it's hard to understand exactly what John is saying here. So let's, let's try to figure this out together, okay? Verse 12, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then John kind of rinses and repeats here. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, in some ways, the language here is pretty straightforward, uh, some of the things he's saying. There's a lot of questions that come up, like, why does John create all these categories? Why is he talking to children, and then fathers, and then young men, and then he kind of starts over again, and why not women? Like, what's going on? Is John sexist? Like, what's going on here? Why, and, 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 and is it that one thing applies to one group and, and not the other? Well, first of all, I don't think John is a sexist. Second of all, I, I do think if you read the entirety of 1 John, anything that he says to one group would apply to all the other groups. It's not just little children who have been forgiven of their sins, right? Even people over the age of 12 can be forgiven. It's not just fathers who know God. John's clear on that. And it's not just young men who have overcome the evil one. Um, in fact, if, if you, the, the, the word he uses in verse 12 for little children, it's, it's the Greek word, um, which, which is not indicate, it's not, it doesn't mean like infants or, or juveniles or adolescents. The word literally means children of any age implying that you have a parent and he's speaking to all people who call God their father this, this is all believers and in fact we see five other times in this book that he refers to the entire audience of believers as his dear little children so I, I don't think that John is categorizing and some people say it's spiritual age which maybe maybe not we don't know um, there's been tons of debate there's been a lot of, of theorizing and analyzing in this passage, and no one, I mean, you read commentaries, there's really no great conclusion. It's kind of poetic, it's kind of mysterious. We don't know exactly why John wrote it the way he wrote it. Um, John Piper suggested that it could even be as simple as he keeps calling them all little children, and he doesn't want to patronize and offend. Like, maybe these 50-year-olds are like, okay, quit calling me a little kid, right? So he says, and fathers, and young men, but whatever the case, I'm not so much concerned about knowing some of the unknowables, but to really look at why is this important, and why did John write it? What's the message for us in this passage of Scripture, and how does it fit in with the overall purposes of 1 John? I want you to imagine for a minute that you are a soldier, all right? 
put our imagination caps on. And you know, I, we don't do this a lot. If you have served in the military in, in one capacity or another, could you stand for a second so we can just kind of honor you? Is there anybody here that's served in that capacity? Thank you. We, we, we are very grateful for your bravery, for your sacrifice for our country. So for some of us, this will be easier than for others. Imagine that you are a soldier. And last weekend, you were engaged in a pretty heavy battle. You're at war. And last weekend, your battalion was just getting slaughtered. You were outnumbered. Um, there didn't seem to be any sign of victory. And instead of fighting valiantly, you ran like a coward. You went AWOL, abandoning your friends, your fellow soldiers, and your comrades. And you've come crawling back feeling pretty guilty, feeling pretty shameful about that abandonment. And then very recently, in light of that defeat, your, your troop is pretty small now. You've dwindled down to just a few soldiers, and your commander left your battalion for one that was more hopeful. He says, this is a lost cause, and so I'm going over here to help these men in a situation that we might actually be able to accomplish something. And now, with, with your commander gone, you find yourself in a foxhole, just like this guy. And in the midst of this foxhole, there are 50 enemy soldiers who have surrounded you with their guns pointed at your head. Now, in this scenario, is there any strength or courage to fight? All you would probably feel like doing in that moment is taking your own gun and ending the situation quicker and less painfully. See, without the hope of winning, there is no motivation to fight. Without the hope of victory, there is no motivation to fight. And many times, we find ourselves in this situation in our lives where it seems like there is no hope, so why fight? You remember the purposes of John's letter. If you were here when we talked about the introduction, he's pretty clear. He says, I write to you so that your joy will be I write to you so that you will know that you will have assurance that you have eternal life. And at the beginning of chapter 2 here, we're, we're halfway through this, at the beginning of chapter 2, he said, my dear children, there it is again, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. Or one of the purposes here says we walk in the light, it's a walk in holiness. It's walking like Jesus walks, walking with Jesus in the light, in holiness. And then at the end of the chapter, fast forward, we haven't been here yet, because I'm writing these things to you to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. John says, listen, you're engaged in a battle. I don't want you to fall into sin's trappings. I don't want you to be overcome and defeated by this world. And I don't want you to be led astray by the enemy, by those false teachers I want you to stand, and I want you to fight. But what happens in your life when you feel, when you feel the guilt of a deep, dark sin? I know. 
when you've betrayed somebody, when, when you've done something that you don't want anyone else to know about, but you feel the guilt of it, you've abandoned someone you love, what about when you feel like God has abandoned you? Maybe you have a loved one who's sick or is hurting, or there's someone who's screaming out and saying, God, I need you to show me yourself, and God doesn't show up, and God doesn't heal, and God doesn't fix the problem, and it feels like God is not there. And what happens when you feel like the temptation is just too great, that the sin is too big, when the enemy has surrounded you and it's pointing the guns at your head and there is no hope. When there's no hope, there is no motivation to fight. And what John says here in verse 14, in these, in these three little verses, he gives us the weapons that are necessary to give us hope and to find victory. And you know what that weapon, that primary weapon that he gives us is in verse 14. He says, God's word lives in your hearts. And you have won your battle with the evil one. Brothers and sisters, our battle is not against another country. It's not against men, other soldiers. It's not against flesh and blood, Paul tells us. This battle that we're engaged in is lies versus truth. The only weapon the enemy has is to tell you lies and hope that you will believe it. The weapon God gives us is his sure word, his truth. And we need to be reminded, and what John does with his dear children, with his fathers, with his young men, in this passage, he says, remember who you are, and in that you're going to find hope. So, so think of it this way, when Satan tempts you, to despair, and he tells you of the guilt within. You know the song, when Satan points at your sins and says, you're not good enough. You should be ashamed of yourself. You can't engage with people. Are you kidding me? How much guilt you have in your life? John screams to that person. He says, dear children, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins, no matter how great they are, they have been removed as far as the east is from the west for those who believe in Jesus. That he came and he wiped the slate clean and in him there is now no condemnation. You're forgiven. And when we feel like God has abandoned us, when we feel like he's not there, he says, fathers, you know him. And the word here is an intimate knowledge of, an experiential relationship with the King of Kings. It says you know him as daddy. And you know him to be faithful. You know that he will not leave you nor forsake you. You know him. And then finally, for those who feel like sin is just is too big, that there's no way that they can beat that temptation in their lives, he says, young men, you've already won. You've already won. The battle is over. When Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated sin and death once and for all. There is no temptation that is bigger than God's grace. There's nothing in this known universe that's more powerful than him. And it's up to us in the foxhole to either believe the lies of the enemy around us or to believe the truth of who stands with us and stands in us. John knows that we can never overcome sin 
And his purpose here is that he writes that you won't sin, that you won't be led astray. He knows we can, we can never avoid sin if we feel like our sins are not forgiven. If we feel like God is not there, and if we feel like Satan has won. So he hands his dear listeners, and he hands us today, the truth. And he says, Jesus says, the truth will set you free. So he says, well, then why does John repeat himself here? Why does he have to say, I mean, he basically, I mean, not verbatim, but he basically just says the same things in 12 and 13 again in, in verse 14. Like, why go through it all again? Save some ink, John, and move on, right? Well, this has baffled scholars for thousands of years, and I definitely don't have a definitive take on this. But what I do know is this. When you want something to sink in, you say it twice. When you really want something to sink in, you might say it three, four, five, six times. I remember when I was coaching basketball, um, we, would, we would go in, we were, there was one situation where we went in, uh, to the end of the game, we're up by, I think it was two or three points, 30 seconds left. All we have to do is hold on to that basketball, and we win the game. So we huddle up in the timeout, and I say, my dear little children, don't shoot the ball, okay? Just hold on to the basketball and we win the game, all right? Everybody got it? Pretty clear instructions. Team on three, break. They go out there. Ball gets passed in bounds to a certain player. If you ever watched us, you know who it was. If you didn't, we're not going to gossip. He takes the ball. Two seconds later, boom, shoots it. Other team gets the rebound, goes down, scores a basket, game is tied. And I'm just like eating Maalox, like, you know, just like, what in the, why did you, why did you, what? You know, next time we're in that situation and we huddle up, my dear little children, don't shoot it. Don't shoot it. Don't shoot, don't shoot it. Don't shoot it. Do not, shoot. if you have the ball, don't shoot the ball. Hold the ball. Don't shoot. Do not, do not, over and over and over again, right? And God does the same thing here. John says, listen, sin is huge, and it's so easy to fall into this temptation and to walk in darkness. And he says, my, leader, my dear little children, right here, look at me, look at me. You're forgiven. You're, forgi you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You know him. You, listen, look at me. You know him. You have already won. Listen, listen, you've won. You are victorious. You have won. And he says it over and over and over again because he knows how easy it is to step out into life and this scary enemy comes at us with these lies and we panic and we shoot it and we listen to the lies and we allow, even though we're already victorious, we allow ourselves to be defeated by an enemy that's already been slain. There's a, a, an unknown, I don't know where the source of this came from, but it's a poem, and it says the following, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. The enemy is there, and it's real. And those lies can penetrate. But John says, listen, you're forgiven. You have an intimate relationship with the Father. And you are more than conquerors, Romans 8 says. And with that one little word of truth, we can 
decimate the enemy. And it's from this truth in this foxhole that we can obey the next commandment that John gives us in the second section of verses. Verses 15 through 17, John says at the beginning of it, he says, do not love this world. Do not love this world. Now, this is the only command given in this section, and so therefore, it's probably the main point, the main thing that John is driving at. Do not love this world. And everything else that follows, he gives these three incentives to us as to why we would not want to follow this world. Okay? So in verse 15, the first incentive is that love for the world pushes out love for the Father. Love for the world pushes out love for the Father. Verse 15, he says this. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. So he's pretty clear. He says, listen, if you love the world, you cannot love the Father. And then what is implied there is if you love the Father, you will not love the world. John says you have to make a choice. You you can't play the game of, of limbo in between these two. John, Jesus said it in a different way in Matthew. He said, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve, in this case, both God and money. He says, you must make a choice. You serve one or the other. You cannot serve both. Imagine you're working for McDonald's and you're working at the cannery. Right, times are tough. <laughs> and, and your boss at McDonald's says you need to be here at 8 a.m. to get ready to flip some burgers. And your boss at the cannery says you need to be here at 7.45 and you need to be ready to cut some fish up. Well, can you obey both? Can you be in both places simultaneously? Can you, can you obey both masters? No, you've got to choose. You're either in one location or the other. And John says, listen, you can have love for the Father, or you can have love for this world, but you can't have both. And then he gives us the reason why in verse 16. He says, for these, the things of this world, and we'll get to what those are in a moment, are not from the Father, but are from this world. He says, listen, you can't love the things of the world and the Father, because the things of this world are not from the Father. They come from a different source, and therefore you can't love, you can only love God if you love the things from God, but if you're loving things that are from elsewhere, then you can't love God. So he says, you have the choice. You love God or you love this world. So that's incentive number one. You can't love God if you love the world. Second incentive, he says, the world is fading away. The world is fading away. Verse 17, this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. Okay, this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. We're going to play a little game here. I'm going to wake you up a little bit, all right? This game is called Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down. It's a very easy game. I'm going to give you some hypothetical situations. If you would do this, give me a thumbs up, all right? If you would not do this, thumbs down, okay? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Pretty simple. First hypothetical scenario. There's a company that is guaranteed to go out of business. It is going to be bankrupt at any moment. It's not going to last through the weekend. Would you buy stock in that company? Thumbs up or thumbs down? We have some financially savvy people in the building today. <laughs> Hallelujah. Because you guys pay me. Um, yes, very good. You passed the test. Number two, you come from the future. Okay? 
you go back in time, the Titanic is about to sail, right? This time, no lifeboats at all, okay? You're guaranteed to go down with the ship. You're going to sink, you're going to die, okay? Do you board that ship? Thumbs up? Thumbs up. You got, man. I want to see, where's Blair? That's the one I'm interested in. Okay, he's not here. He's probably on the Titanic. All right, very good, very good. All right, and the last one. You have your most valuable possessions in the whole world, okay? Nothing matters more to you than these things. Um, and you're going to store them in, in, a, in, a, in a storage unit. But the guy that works there, he says, now I'm guaranteeing you that these possessions will be stolen, okay? If they're not stolen, we have really bad ventilation and everything's just going to rot. Like it's just going to all, you're not going to want to touch any of it after a few weeks, okay? Do you store your things here? Thumbs up. Or, or thumbs down. Okay. This is not a hard game, is it? <laughs> then why, every day, do we put our stock in this world? Why, every day, do we board this world's ship and we know it's going to sink? Why, every day, do we store our possessions temporary unit and John says listen it's all all going to burn it's all going to fade away and yet every day we put our our trust into 401ks and insurance and airbags and seat belts now do not get me wrong I don't want any kids going home today say Justin said we don't have to wear seat belts anymore no no what I'm saying is we put our ultimate security in these very temporary things. And when we buy what the world is selling, and we say, man, if I, if things would be good, if I just had that job, right? If I just married that person, if I just owned that property, if I just looked like that person, if I just owned that electronic, things would be good. And we chase after the things of this world that are so clearly fading away. And John says, listen, it's all temporary. It's all temporary. It is a vapor that is here today and is gone tomorrow. Do not love the things of this world. And the scariest thing yet is not just that these things of the world are fading away, but so do the people who pursue them. Right? Jesus doesn't mince words in Matthew 16. He hauntingly says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. If you attempt to save your life through the world's system, you're going down with the ship. You're going out of business with the company, and you're going to rot with your possessions. That's what Jesus says. It's, it's strong words. But there's an incentive that's a little bit more positive in the second half of verse 17. The last incentive is, if you love God, you'll live forever you love God, you'll live forever. Verse 17, but anyone who does what God, what pleases God will live forever. It says if you love this world, you're fading away with this world, but if you love God, if you do what pleases God, you'll live forever. Now notice at the beginning, he said if you love the Father versus loving the world, but now he changes his language. He doesn't say anyone who loves the Father will live forever. He says whoever does what pleases the Father lives forever. And you say, well, what's the difference? Why all of a sudden did he say, do what pleases, as opposed to love? 
Well, because for John, those two concepts are interchangeable. Look at what he says in chapter 5. Loving God means keeping his commandments. If you love him, you'll do what pleases him. If you love him, you'll obey him. If you love him, you'll do what he says. It is empty talk to say, yeah, I love God, but then you don't do his will. Now, you may look at that and say, well, wait a second. So if he says, do what pleases God and you'll live forever, is that a works-based salvation? Is that saying the only way that I get eternal life, the only way I live forever, is if I do what God says? Do I have to do something to earn my salvation? Because that seems pretty counterpoint to the gospel that we see threaded throughout the Bible. Well, I'm here to say yes. You do have to do what pleases him in order to live forever. The question is, what does he say you must do? And that's where we see John in in chapter 3. He tells us this. And this is his commandment. This is what pleases him. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So this is his command. He says, you need to grab onto Jesus. You're a sinner, and you're not good enough. Jesus is good enough, and you need to throw your arms around him. You need to push your chips all in the middle on Jesus. You need to trust him as your source of everything for life and hope and righteousness. And when you do that, you please me. Because what did he say when Jesus came out of the water? This is my son. In him, I am well pleased. The only person on this planet who's ever truly pleased God in every sense is Jesus. And to do what God commands is to believe Jesus. And when we believe Jesus, when he becomes our Lord and Savior and he's living in us, you know what comes out? Jesus. And you know what happens? We love like Jesus. So how do you do what pleases God? You believe in Jesus, and then you're going to start loving like Jesus. This is our gospel. John says, I want you to buy stock that's guaranteed to make you millions. I want you to get on a ship that's truly never going to sink. And I want you to put your possessions in a place where moths and rust can never destroy or touch what you're building toward. So if you want to work in God's economy, if you want to put your your stock in things that are going to last forever, then you do what pleases him, and that's all centered around the person of Jesus, believing him and loving him. So three incentives. Can't love the world and love God. Don't put your stock in the world because it's fading away. And he says, put your stock in God because that's where you're going to find eternal value and reward. So, but what does John mean specifically when he says the world? What is he, what is he speaking of? Don't love this world. Well, what is the world? That's kind of where we're going to land the plane this morning, okay? The world, by, by world, he does not mean the people who live in the world. That would run counter to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So clearly he's not saying don't love the world, meaning don't love people. The Greek word cosmos um, which is what he uses here for world. It can be translated, uh, it, can, it can have the three different definitions, all of which can be translated world. The first one is just the physical earth, dirt, rocks, water, trees, the physical planet that we live on. The second one is the people of the world. That's the context of John 3.16. But the final use that you'll see in the New Testament for cosmos is the world's system 
apart from God. In other words, the way the world works, when you take God out of the equation, what the world can offer you apart from its creator. And in the context, and as you read scriptures, you become a student of the word, you'll find context is king. What is the surrounding context of what I'm reading? And the context here dictates that he's talking about, he says, do not love the world's system when God is taken out of the equation. Because the prince of the power of the air is the God of that system. And you can't love both. So what he says here, what, what, what is in this world system? What does this world system offer? Verse 16, he tells us three things. It says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. New Living translates it a little bit different, but you're probably more familiar with those three terms. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. He says this is what the world has to offer you. Now, you break these things down. The first one is the pride of life. This does not mean, like, being proud of being alive. Like, yes, I'm not dead. Um, No, he's saying the pride of life is the pride in the the possessions that make life possible. That you're proud of the things of your life. So it could be physical things that you own, material possessions. It could be your, your personality, your dashing good looks. It could be your intellect. Like, whatever it is that you possess that makes your life possible. And you're proud of that. So in other words, the, the two differences here, the lust of the flesh and eyes is desires for things that we don't have, and the pride of life is pride in what we do have. And apart from God, this is the only two places we can land, is chasing what's not ours, or puffing up what is ours, and pretending that it comes from us. In other words, another way to say it is the world system is driven by two things. It's passion for pleasure and pride in possessions. A lot of P's. Okay, passion for pleasure or pride in your possessions. Apart from God, we're left with two, 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 two alternatives. We can be jealous of what other people have and we don't have, or we can judge other people for not having what we have. Right? That's it. It's this game where we just kind of compare each other with, with one another. And it's sick and it's wrong and it's godless. And so w- what John says here, then, then he breaks down these two the passion for pleasure, the two lusts, lust of the flesh would be physical desire. This would be, you know, sexual desires, appetite, things that to fill your hunger in different capacities, whereas the lust of the eyes is aesthetics. This is the bling, right? This is the beautiful house. This is the painting. This is the the, the new car, the, the shiny objects that appeal to your eyeballs, so these are the two things. It's bodily pleasures versus intellectual pleasures. It's the penthouse magazine versus the Picasso painting. And no matter if it's crude or it's cultured, God says neither of them are love for me. In fact, the last verse that John said in John in this epistle, John says, Dear children, there it is one more time, dear children, keep away, and some translations say idols, keep away from idols. I love how the New Living breaks down what an idol is. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Stay away from anything that could take God's place in your hearts, whether it's crude or whether it's cultured, whether it's bodily pleasure or an intellectual pleasure. You see, the reality is, and John Piper says this another way, basically he's rewording it, anything in this world that is not God, can rob your heart of the love of God. Anything that is not God himself 
can rob your heart of the love of God. Now, this isn't just the obvious things. Like earlier, we compared God and money, or God and, and, you know, sex outside of marriage, or some of these things that seem to be so much more straightforward. Your wife or husband could fit this category, because they're not God. You're like, I know. Your children, the child in your womb or in your spouse's womb is not God and can replace in your heart your love for God. The Bible is not God. It's God's truth, but taken with the wrong motivation and with the wrong approach, it can replace your love for God himself. Anything in this world that's not God can replace your love for God. See, if you don't have it, it can fill you with passion to get it. And if you get it, it can fill you with pride that you've got it. This is where it takes you. And, and, the, and, and the scripture speaks out against these two things. I love what, what, um, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about the pride of life. He says, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Therefore, as the scripture says, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. He says, listen, everything that you own, your, your material possessions, your intellect, your, your, your good looks, everything that you have was a gift from God. If I give you a million dollars and then you go around saying, look what I earned, say, man, I gave that to you, right? And, and, and there's nothing, he says, the only thing we can boast about is the Lord himself because everything comes from him. And then to speak out against the lust of the eyes and the flesh, the psalmist says this, whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. Let us, brothers and sisters, desire nothing, possess nothing, pursue nothing but God himself. Now you might say, I'm confused like this little guy, what do I do with my desires? So what do I do with my desires? Like, are you set, like, shouldn't I desire my spouse? Shouldn't I desire my children? Shouldn't I desire a good meal and a nap and some health and my work? Like, is it wrong to desire those things? Shouldn't I desire those things? My answer is no. No, you shouldn't. Unless it is a desire for God. Unless your desire for your spouse is a desire in that relationship to love God and to know God, then it's idolatry. If, if your desire at work is anything outside of a chance to be able to know God and serve God and love God, then your work can become an idol. Anything in this world, Augustine said it this way, he loves thee too little who loves anything which he loves not for thy sake. A lot of these and thys. He says anything you love that's not for God's sake, that is not ultimately a love for God, is falling short of the love of God. It's not loving him, it's loving this world. And there's anything in our lives. In fact, the more value, Jacob said it once, the more value something has, the easier it is to become an idol, to love it instead of God. Anything in your life can become something you love for its sake and not God's sake. You confuse the means with the end, but here's the beautiful truth. If you love God first, he, that opens up the, the door to love everything else in its proper place. 
Now every time you enter a room, it can become a temple of worship and love to God. Anytime you work, it can become work, a sacrifice of love unto God. Anytime you eat your food, it becomes a banquet table of love for God. God, thank you for this hamburger. It's amazing. And every relationship can become an opportunity to see God and know God. And all things are redeemed through Christ. So the world, little children, the world surrounds you in the foxhole. Remember, look at me, dear children, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You know him. You know him. He is faithful. He is there. You know him. You have overcome. You are victorious. We are victorious. The battle is over in Jesus. We are more than conquerors. And we do not have to fear the enemy. Father, it's so easy for us to get duped by this world and its system. So easy for us to buy what the world is selling. But Father, we're jumping on a ship that's going down. We're putting stock in a business that's not going to last through the weekend. And Father, I confess that it's so easy for me to get wrapped up in this world's games and to replace even good things for you. Father, we repent of that. That's what we said walking in the light is. As you show us those things, as you convict us of things in our lives that we love not for your sake, but for their own sake. As you convict those things in my life and in the hearts of my brothers and sisters today, God, I pray that we would respond to your Holy Spirit, that we would confess those sins, that we call them out for what they are so that we can continue to walk in the light with you. Father, there's nothing outside of you that will satisfy our hearts. And Father, there's many in this room today who feel like they're in the foxhole, who feel like that the temptations are too big, who feel like you're not there. We have this sense of guilt and shame in our lives that we've done something too big for you to forgive. Father, expose those lies. Remind us that we are forgiven. Remind us that we know you. And remind us that we have overcome. Father, we want to do what pleases you so that we'll live forever. And we know that what pleases you is to believe in your son, to grab onto him as our source of everything. And it's in his name that we glorify you, that we eat and we drink for your glory, and that we pray these words. Amen.